In her most recent book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, uh, posthumously published, Elizabeth Elliot, she tells the following story. Back in 1820, there was a little six-week-old baby who had an inflammation of the eyes, and the doctor applied hot poultices and burned the corneas so that the child was blind for life. When she was nine years old, she wrote these words. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world, contented I shall be. So many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. And that little girl grew up to write 8,000 hymns. Do you know who it is? That's right, it's Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby. 17 of Fanny Crosby's hymns appear in our hymnal, the best of which I think is probably number 280, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And here's verse 4 from that hymn. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. Fanny Crosby embodied in her life and in her music the call of every Christian to trust God in every scene and season. That's what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. Trusting God in every scene and season of our lives. Trusting God whether or not we're soaring or if we're suffering. And as we study God's Word together this morning, I pray that you would find God worthy of your trust. And if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 324. As we turn our attention to 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20, we must remember that the book of Kings, it chronicles a descent from the golden age, the golden era of Israel under Solomon in Israel, to their division, to the nation's division and descent into the grueling age of the exile. In our study of the book, we've already seen the kingdom's division into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And last Sunday, we saw the northern kingdom of Israel carried off to exile by Assyria. Judah alone is left. And from this point forward in the book of Kings, we're we're watching Judah's history unfold. The northern kingdom of Israel suffered the punishment of exile because of their unbelief and sin and idolatry. And the question that should be jumping into our minds as we're studying this book, as we're reading, is through Judah, through the kingdom of Judah, will the Lord finally raise up a son of David to sit on the throne forever? The, The three chapters that we have before us today recount three trials in the kingdom of Judah. In the first, Assyria surrounds the capital city of Jerusalem and they threaten to invade. In the second, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he becomes sick and will soon die. And in the third, Judah is safe. They face the trial or the test of prosperity. And the theme tying these events and chapters together is trust. Will you trust God when you're surrounded? Will you trust God when you're sick and suffering? Will you trust God when you're safe? These chapters, however, don't begin with a trial. They begin with a a demonstration of trust, something that we've frankly rarely seen in the book of Kings. We'll study these chapters under four headings. First, demonstrate your trust in God. Then, trust God when you're surrounded. Trust God when you're sick. And trust God when you're safe. Two words summarize this passage. Trust God. Trust God. That's the message of 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20. Let's turn now and consider our first point. Demonstrate your trust in God. This is what we find in 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 1 to 12. For now, let's just begin by reading the first eight verses of the chapter. And as we read, note Hezekiah's trust. Beginning there in verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that was called uh, bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. As is his common practice... In verses 1 to 3, the, the author of Kings, he, he leads with what's called his regnal formula, this royal formula, and then his evaluation of Hezekiah as king. Hezekiah, he began to reign before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. But what makes his reign remarkable is that he was unlike any king of Judah before him or after him. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like David, his father. In the book of Kings, that means he faithfully worshipped Yahweh. He did not go after other gods. This evaluation gives us hope that, that perhaps Hezekiah is the promised son of David who will reign on his father's throne forever. Hezekiah went, went beyond the faithful worship of Yahweh. He did what no other king did before him. He, verse 4, you see it there, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Hezekiah brought an end to syncretism in Judah. He, he made it plain that in his kingdom, people would not worship Yahweh and other gods. They would worship Yahweh alone. He, he would not tolerate a kind of Yahweh plus worship. He would not tolerate or allow Yahweh plus Baal or Yahweh plus Asherim or Yahweh plus anything else. The people of Judah were to worship Yahweh alone. And you see verses 5 and 6 there, they reveal Hezekiah's personal trust. We're told that he trusted, he held fast, that he kept the commandments of the Lord. Can, can your faith be described like that? Trusting, holding, keeping. Hezekiah, you see there, was with the Lord and the Lord was with him. Verses 7 and 8 reveal that the Lord gave Hezekiah victory over his enemies. He defeats Philistines like David defeated Philistines. And this, we must remember, is a summary of Hezekiah's reign. It's the, it's the snapshot of his reign. We're meant to, to walk away from this text and, and think that in the main, Hezekiah was a God-honoring, God-glorifying king. Now, that doesn't mean he was without his faults and flaws. We're going to see some of his faults and flaws emerge in our text. But the general evaluation Hezekiah receives as a king is positive. And it's positive because he displayed his trust in the Lord through obedience to his commands. We ought to pray that our lives are, are dominated by a demonstration of faithfulness and trust in God. We are going to have our faults and our flaws. You'll never be perfect. We are going to trust in the wrong things and the wrong people from time to time. But in the main, we may hear the words of our God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Make it your life's ambition that you might demonstrate your trust in God from day to day, hoping, holding, and keeping. In verses 9 to 12, the author of, the, of Kings, he, he repeats himself. He gives us information that he's already given us before in the book. He reminds us of what took place in 2 Kings chapter 17. He, he tells us about the fall of Hosea in the northern kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrian Empire. And the, his reason for this is because he wants to set up the trial that runs from 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 13 through the end of chapter 19. And this is where we learn to trust God in the face of trial. Being surrounded by the enemies of God. So let's turn then and consider our, our second point now. Trust God when you're surrounded. Trust God when you're surrounded. Having just been given a, a sterling description of Hezekiah's faith, we're giving a surprising description of Hezekiah's folly in verses 13 to 16. Sennacherib, 
the king of Assyria, he has invaded Judah. He has captured all the fortified cities of Judah. And Hezekiah pleads with the king of Assyria to leave his land. Look at verse 14. Do you see that there? Where is Hezekiah's trust in this trial? Do you see that it's now in money? In verse 15, we're told that Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Not only that, but if you keep reading, you'll see that he, he stripped the temple of its gold and gave it to the king of Assyria. It's always a bad thing when a king strips the temple of its riches. And guess what? The king of Assyria is still not satisfied. He sends his generals out to have a word with Hezekiah in the capital city of Jerusalem. Oh, and, and by the way, they've brought their army too. In some, Jerusalem is now surrounded. The Rabshakeh, who was the uh, chief cupbearer for the king of Assyria, calls for a word with Hezekiah. And instead of boldly coming out to meet him, Hezekiah sends out his, his representatives. And look at what the Rabshakeh um, says beginning there in verse 19. And notice how he identifies the central issue. It's trust. Notice how he identifies trust as a central concern. Begin reading there in verse 19. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now just pause there and ask yourself, wait, wait a minute. I thought Hezekiah just paid off the king of Assyria. Right? Didn't he just strip the temple of all of its riches and say, hey, get out of town? What is the king of Assyria doing here? Did the king of Assyria just double-cross Hezekiah and Judah? As one Old Testament scholar says, well, you never trust an Assyrian. Um, yes, tyrants are never fully satisfied. They always keep asking for more. The, the Rabshakeh is clearly searching for the backdrop of Hezekiah and Judah's trust, isn't he? You trust in your depleted military. Are you trusting in Egypt? Is it Yahweh you're trusting in? And the Rabshakeh, he's particularly snarky about um, trusting in Yahweh. He even suggests that uh, Yahweh has called him to go up to Jerusalem and destroy it. That's there in verse 25. He says, you know, Yahweh called me to come and do this to you. Now stop and, and ponder something for a moment. Should Hezekiah and Judah really be in this situation to begin with? Hezekiah has been found faithful as a king. I mean, isn't that the report we were just given? And now that the people of Judah, they're, they're worshiping Yahweh alone according to his commands. They're doing everything right, right? So shouldn't they have peace and prosperity? Doesn't faithful faith yield bountiful blessings? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? We're good for God, and then God's good to us, right? Wrong, sometimes. Right? Just think about the Lord Jesus. Was that how it worked for the Lord Jesus? He did everything right, and he ended up crucified. We can trust in the name of the Lord our God. We can obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart, and still face trials. Enemies may still come. The world may assault you. Friends may betray you. Difficulty may beset you. God may send difficulty to you, like he sent Assyria to Judah and Hezekiah. What if God is bringing or has brought a trial into your life? What if he surrounds you with difficulty because he wants to persuade you that he is enough? Could he be teaching Hezekiah and Judah to trust him when they're surrounded? We shouldn't doubt it. Could God be teaching you to trust him? In verse 26, Hezekiah's representatives, they plead with the Rabshakeh to speak in Aramaic. They don't, they don't want the people of Jerusalem to hear what he's saying. 
But this only encourages the Rabshakeh to speak just a little bit louder now. He wages a, a propaganda war, and he wants the people of Jerusalem to hear what he has to say. From verses 28 to 35, the Rabshakeh makes a series of arguments. First, the Rabshakeh openly tells the people of Judah to abandon their trust in God. Look at verse 30. Do you see that? Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord Yahweh by saying, The Lord Yahweh will surely deliver us out of this city. And, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then in verse 31, he tempts them. He invites them to come and to trust in his king. He promises them another Eden, another garden-like land. He speaks like a serpent. He's, he's making promises to them as though his king is God. And that is what you will be tempted by when you're surrounded. You'll be tempted by a, a, a grass is greener kind of mentality. And did you notice how he spoke of his king? He calls him the great king. He speaks of him though he's the, the greatest king. But who really is the greatest king? This confrontation is not merely between the king of Assyria and the king of Judah, Hezekiah. No, this is really a conflict between the king of Assyria and the king of heaven, between God himself. Verses 33 to 35 are a list of the so-called gods that the king of Assyria has triumphed over. And through this list, he's asserting that he's more powerful than all of the gods. And then look at what he says in verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Do you see what he's saying? The, the Rabshakeh is saying, all those people, look, they, they trusted in their gods and they lost. If you trust in your God, you're going to lose too. He, he's just like all the other gods out there. And you'll be just like all the other peoples. That is a movement from an indirect assault on the trustworthiness of God to a direct assault. How do the people of Judah respond to these threats? Well, they respond with silence. Sometimes the best way to handle the bluster of the world is to say nothing. Sometimes silence is the right answer. Christian, do not be afraid to hold your tongue and let God vindicate His name. Hold your tongue. And in our day and age, hold your thumbs. Right? You don't have to text or tweet. You don't have to send that email. You don't have to reply to everything. Let's remember that our Savior, let's remember Jesus, who wisely chose not to open His mouth and reply, even when He was reviled and threatened. The people's silence, as you can see there from verse 36, it's actually an act of obedience. They submit to the King and they keep their mouths shut. And since uh, sometimes we should be wise to ask, we'd be wise to ask a fellow believer, should, should I respond to what this person is saying? And, and if they tell you, don't, don't respond to that, I don't, I don't think that would be fruitful, then we ought to seriously consider obeying them and remain silent. Hezekiah, his servants respond with grief. They, they tear their clothes, probably because Yahweh has just been maligned by the Rabshakeh and the king of Assyria. And as chapter 19 opens, we get Hezekiah's response. How does Hezekiah respond? He responds with faith-filled trust in God. He too tears his clothes. And in his moment of grief, do you see where he goes? you see verse 1 of chapter 19? As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord Yahweh. What do you do when you're surrounded? What do you do? Do you draw near to God? Do you keep trusting? Do you go into His Word? In Hezekiah's day, that the prophet of God was the one who delivered the Word of God. And in verse 2, we find Hezekiah seeking out God's prophet. He clearly tells Isaiah that he believes Yahweh has been mocked. And on behalf of the remnant, that's of Judah, on behalf of the remnant of God, Hezekiah wants Isaiah to call upon the Lord. It's interesting how Hezekiah asks Isaiah to pray. It's basically this. Lord, hear the way you're being mocked and rebuke them. Hezekiah knows that above all else, God is concerned for His glory's sake. 
And so Hezekiah appeals to God not to allow his glory to be tainted, not to allow him to be slighted by such arrogance. Lord, don't allow him to slight you in your glory. And the Lord's reply is found in verses 6 and 7 there of chapter 19. Essentially, God promises to bring the Assyrian king's threat to an end and to bring the Assyrian king's life to an end. Now, this doesn't happen all right away, which means that Hezekiah and the people of Judah have to take God at His word. They have to keep trusting and they have to do so with the king of Assyria continuing to make threats. Sometimes trials go on for a long time and you have to keep trusting through them. They have to keep trusting God. While the army, while the Assyrian army is temporarily diverted to another battle, the Rabshakeh promises to return and conquer Jerusalem. He sends a letter to Hezekiah with more of the uh, same old bluster and the the promise that he's going to topple Yahweh. Continuing to trust God means to continue to cry out to Him in prayer. And that's what Hezekiah does. When he receives the letter, he takes it into the house of the Lord. Do you see that in verse 14? He takes it into the house of the Lord and he spreads it out. It's as if he wants to show Yahweh what he's received. He wants to set it before God's eyes. Do you see what is being claimed here, God? Do you you ever show God what you're facing in prayer? Do you ever say, Lord, I'm facing this. Do you ever tell him about it? Do you ever spread it before him? It's as if um, Hezekiah wants Yahweh to see it. And Hezekiah, he begins praying in verse 15. Uh, read Hezekiah's prayer there in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord Yahweh, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord Yahweh, our God, save us. Please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, O Lord Yahweh, are God alone. You see how Hezekiah describes the kingship of God. Yahweh, the the Lord. That's what those capital letters L-O-R-D mean, Yahweh. The Lord is enthroned above all. God's kingship is a sovereign kingship. There is none above God. Not even the mighty king of Assyria. And to all this, to this all-sovereign creator God, Hezekiah asks God to hear the words of Sennacherib. To hear his mocking. To hear his indignation. And to hear his reviling. And notice Hezekiah's honesty in prayer. You see there in verses 17 and 18, Hezekiah admits that Sennacherib has destroyed a great many nations. You can be honest about what you're facing. You can say to the Lord, this feels insurmountable. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. This feels mighty. They were destroyed because those nations, the gods of those nations were not really God God at all. That's why they were destroyed. But then in verse 19, we come to Hezekiah's request. Verse 19 again. So now, O Lord Yahweh our God, save us, please. You see how he's pleading with the Lord, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord Yahweh, are God alone. Do you see the logic in Hezekiah's prayer there? Save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Stop Assyria so that all of the nations whom they defeated will know that you alone are Lord. Their king and their army have denigrated your name. Show them just how great your name is. Hezekiah asks for good and for glory. He petitions the Lord to bring his people good, salvation, 
for the purpose of bringing glory to his name. Hezekiah wants God to defeat Sennacherib. And he wants this for really missionary purposes. So that the nations might know that Yahweh is God. Do you pray for missionary purposes to take place in your life? When you present your requests to God, do you pray, Lord, answer this prayer so that others may see that you are great? Do you you make your prayer more about God than really yourself? In, In 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 20 to 34, we find the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's faith-filled prayer. The Lord acknowledges that he has heard Hezekiah's prayer and that he has heard Sennacherib's words. You see that in verse 20. Uh, You can trust God when you're surrounded because he hears the cries of his people and he hears the boasts of his enemies. He hears and he knows. Christian, let that be a comfort to you. He hears and he knows. When you're surrounded... The world and your circumstances are not spinning out of control because God is in control. When you're surrounded, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you're surrounded, trust God and pray. The Lord promises to dispatch Sennacherib and to defend the city of Jerusalem in verses 20 to 34. That's the summary of those verses. The Lord is also clear that this is a battle of God's and he means to prove himself sovereign. Look at verse 22. Speaking of Sennacherib, the Lord says, Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Who is that Holy One of Israel? He's the one who crushed Egypt and carried his people across dry ground. And then notice verse 25. The Lord says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? In other words, you think, Sennacherib, you think you're all high and mighty. But like Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. I planned all of this. That's right. You didn't build your empire. I did. You didn't defeat those nations. I did. I made you the most powerful nation on the earth and brought you to the gates of my most prized possession, the city of Jerusalem, so that the world may know that I am the living God. And by the way, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'm going to drag you around like the workhorse that you are for me. That's what Yahweh says to the king of Assyria. Yahweh will use Assyria as he pleases and he will preserve his people because it's his good pleasure. He's committed to his promises and to his people. He's even going to make his people prosper again. That's the basic idea in verses 29 to 31. Still notice there in verses 32 to 34 that Judah and Hezekiah, they receive a great promise. Read 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 32 to 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I, I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. You see, Sennacherib, he's saber-rattling. But Yahweh will end the battle before it even begins. Make no mistake, it will be the Lord who does it. He will defend and save Jerusalem for his own glory and for the sake of his covenant promises. That's what he means when he says there, for the sake of my servant David. God intends to keep his promises to send a descendant of David to be the Savior and Messiah. To save his people, not merely from the Assyrian threat, but from the threat of sin and eternal death. You can trust God when you're surrounded. Because he's committed to his promises. And you can trust God when you're surrounded because he's powerful enough to keep them. That's what we see with the close of chapter 19. Let's remember that the Lord promised Hezekiah in verse 7 of chapter 19 that he would send Sennacherib out and that Sennacherib would die in his own land. Now read verses 35 to 37 of chapter 19. This is what happens. Verse 35. And that night... 
the angel of the Lord Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God keeps his promises to remove Sennacherib and his army from their land and for Sennacherib to to fall by the sword in his own land. God proves himself trustworthy in keeping and fulfilling these promises. What do you do when you're surrounded? You trust God. And what do you do when you're sick? You trust God. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Trust God when you're sick. And as we turn to consider our second point, let's read 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. Pick up reading there in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord Yahweh, saying, Now, O Lord Yahweh, please remember. Please remember how I walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord Yahweh came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord Yahweh. And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Just go ahead and pause there. As you can see there from verse 1, the prognosis is bleak. Uh, Hezekiah is instructed to set his house in order for he's going to die. But then Hezekiah prays. And that promise of death is postponed 15 years. That's what happens in these verses. Why does Yahweh add 15 years to Hezekiah's life? Perhaps it's because of what he prayed. Did you catch his prayer there in verse 3? Hezekiah appeals to Yahweh to remember. To remember his faithfulness, his trust and obedience. Now, Hezekiah is not claiming to be sinless. But he is claiming that overall his life was oriented toward loving and serving God. And now he's sick, right? This reminds us of what we thought about earlier. We can be faithful and still fall ill. We can be pretty good and still end up in the grave. The author of Kings, he leaves out a lot of detail. But we can sense that there's something lurking underneath what's going on here. I think there's actually kind of a little wink in the text. God has declared that Hezekiah will die. But there's something in that declaration that leads Hezekiah to pray and plead with God. You see, sometimes God's declarations of judgment are an inducement. They're an invitation to pray and plead with Him. Hezekiah here stands as a model to the exiled remnant community who first received this book. They were under the judgment of God. Remember, the the people who first received the book of Kings were Judahite exiles were waiting for God to keep His promises. They were under the judgment of God. Their nation had received a kind of death sentence. Would they cry out to God in prayer? Would they plead with Him to be merciful, to deliver them? What are we to make of what we find here in 2 Kings 20? We certainly learn that the Lord God hears the prayers of the people. We learn that God is willing to postpone His judgment. And we learn that God is who He said He is, The God who is sovereign over all creation, He can do with it what He pleases. God can turn the sun back. You see that in verse 11. And He can heal. All this is striking. 
But perhaps what should be standing out to us is the contrast. Did you pick up on the contrast between Hezekiah and Sennacherib? Sennacherib, at the end of chapter 19, he went to his God and he died. Hezekiah, on the other hand, he went to his God, the one true God, and he received life. The author of Kings here is reminding us that his readers and his readers that in the hands of the Lord belong life and death. Hezekiah does not ask the Lord to lengthen his life, but he does ask the Lord to remember his life. Oh Lord, remember how I've been faithful, he says. And that word remember has covenant connotations. It's an important clue in his prayer. When that word is brought out by the people of God in the Old Testament, what they're often asking the Lord to do is to remember his covenant promises. And Hezekiah appears to be calling God to remember his covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. God was establishing the hope of a messianic king who would one day come and save his people from their sins. And Hezekiah's main concern, I think, is not simply his own life, but the royal Davidic line. And I think that makes sense in the book of Kings. At the time of his illness, Hezekiah does not have an heir. He doesn't have a son to sit on the throne and continue the Davidic line. God needs to remember this promise. Manasseh, his son, was to be born three years later. Another clue to the fact that Hezekiah is concerned about the survival of the line of David is how the Lord responds to Hezekiah. In verse 5, the Lord replies to Hezekiah by acknowledging that what? You see that, that he is who? The Lord Yahweh, the God of David, your father. In effect, telling Hezekiah, yes, I will spare your life and sustain my promises to David. I think it's almost a wink in the biblical text. Hezekiah prays, the Lord remember, and it's as if the Lord replies, I see what you did there. I'm the Lord Yahweh, the God of David, your father, and I will sustain your life and remember your promises, my promises. And all of this, it enlivens Hezekiah's faith. In verse 8, he asks for a sign for his healing because he wants to know that he can go up to the house of the Lord. Hezekiah desired communion with God. This sickness and suffering drew Hezekiah nearer to God. And that is precisely its design. Verses 9 to 11 return to the immediate scene of Hezekiah's healing and so describe the means that was used to signify that healing. Well, what should we do when we're sick and suffering, even generally speaking? Should we pray to God for recovery? Yes, I think we should. That's not a sinful prayer. Let's be honest, though. God does not always promise healing and recovery. When applying a passage like this to our lives, we need to recognize that something unique in redemptive history is taking place here. God is pleased to answer Hezekiah's request for healing because Hezekiah's sustainment is the means through which he will keep the coming of Jesus Christ and therefore the defeat of sin and death alive. Is it any wonder that Hezekiah is in the line of the Messiah when Jesus' genealogy is announced in Matthew chapter 1? You and I are not quite connected to the line, to the coming of the Messiah in the same way that Hezekiah was. Nevertheless, I do think that we should learn from Hezekiah. When we are sick, when we are suffering, we ought to call out to our God who is able to heal. When we suffer, we should, as we thought about earlier from Philippians chapter 4, we should not be anxious, but by prayer and petition, present our requests to God. We should also learn from Hezekiah that the Lord may have some larger purposes in our lives in confronting us with illness. It may be that the Lord calls us to suffer with faith as a witness and testimony to others around us. It may be that the Lord intends to draw us into closer communion with Him. Have you considered that about your suffering? It may be part of God's purpose in our suffering to give us a greater appreciation of the sufferings of Christ. Whatever the case may be, let's pray that we learn to confess with Hezekiah and with the Apostle Paul that the Lord is working all things together for our good and for His glory. We've considered what it looks like to trust God when you're surrounded by enemies and when you're sick. But what does it look like to trust God when you're safe? That's what we turn to consider now 
think about in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 to 21. Let's turn now and consider our final point. Trust God when you're safe. And as we do, uh, let, let's read verses 12 to 21 of 2 Kings chapter 20. Verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all the, his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then, Hezekiah, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord Yahweh that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Sometime after Hezekiah recovered and received the promise that God would deliver his city from the Assyrians, Hezekiah welcomed an envoy from Babylon. Hezekiah was safe. Or so he thought. When you are so lavishly wealthy as Hezekiah and the people of Judah appeared to be, is there any need to trust in the Lord? Yes. There's always a need to trust in the Lord, even when you're safe. Perhaps especially when you're safe. Prosperity can be just as much of a test for the people of God as persecution. In some ways, prosperity is an even more difficult test to pass. And here's the reason why. Prosperity can lull us to sleep. Prosperity can bring pride. And pride is difficult to, de to detect. Where do we see Hezekiah's pride in these verses? Right there in verse 13, I think. What did Hezekiah show them? He showed them everything. He showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. He thought that everything was safe. And he thought everything was safe because he thought that he was safe. He had a new lease on life, but he used his security poorly. What an honor it was to be visited by ambassadors from a foreign king. He was concerned for Hezekiah's welfare. He apparently wrote him some get well letters, or I'm glad you got well letters. But they weren't actually get well letters. This wasn't actually a I'm glad you're well kind of visit. This is a look, how can we work together kind of visit? How can we form an alliance kind of visit? What, do you, what do you, can you offer to me? Well, let me just show you everything I can offer to you. What can be the harm in showing the Babylon envoy his whole armory, for example? Right? You know, here Hezekiah appears to have been looking upon this Babylonian envoy as a way of forming an alliance to kind of fight off the belligerent Assyrian army. And so we, we return to the problem of trusting in foreign nations that has been so fiercely opposed in the Old Testament. With the welcome reception of flattery from this Babylonian envoy, we also return to the problem of 
kings in this book, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. Only this time, the king who thinks of himself more highly than he ought is sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And in verses 16 through 18, the Lord informs Hezekiah of the coming judgment. The people of Judah and all that belongs to them is going to be carried off to exile. The nation that they were putting their trust in, Babylon, the nation that they were showing their armory to, would turn on them and take all that belonged to them. Those who were supposed to be kings in Judah, Hezekiah's sons, would be humiliated before the kings in Babylon. Again, prosperity can be a test. It's tempting to trust our wealth and our relationships with others instead of trusting in God. Let us learn this lesson. Wealth can be lost. The people of Judah were going to lose everything. Remember Job. He lost everything. Everything. We have these accounts in the Bible for a reason. They tell us that we can lose everything. And these accounts in the Bible teach us that they're not meant to be trusted. That they're not meant to be valued like that, depended upon like that. They're not even meant to be viewed chiefly as belonging to us. Most of us sitting here today may not think of ourselves as extravagantly wealthy. But if you consider how most of us live by the standards of the majority of the people in this world throughout time, we are extravagantly wealthy. As believers who worship in Arlington County and who live in Northern Virginia, let us be aware that our prosperity is a test and that we ought to never believe we are safe from trusting in wealth instead of our God. King Hezekiah's response to the news in verse 19 that exile is coming and that the people of Judah will lose everything is intriguing. He acknowledges that Isaiah's words are none other than the words of the Lord. Therefore, the judgment is good. The judgment is good in the sense that it's just and right. Therefore, the judgment is good. But what are we to make of Hezekiah's question there? Did you see that? Were you puzzled by that? Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Is this a selfish, pride-filled statement of contentment with the fact that at least nothing bad is going to happen to him? Well, what about the horror that is coming to his children? Or is it an acknowledgement that the dark days of the exile are ahead, but at least, at least in God's mercy, there will be peace for a little while longer. That would be just like God, wouldn't it? To be generous and instead of immediately wiping out Judah to allow room for repentance. What we do know is that this reveals that Hezekiah is not the promised king and son of David. He escapes suffering and he brings suffering upon God's people. But as we know, the promised king the one we're really waiting for in the storyline of the Bible. That king will enter into suffering on behalf of his people and their failure to trust God in nearly every scene that life brings. Suffering will be the very heartbeat of his mission for God's people. Enemies would hurl insults at him and tempt him to abandon God. He would go through intense suffering and pray with fervency. This future king would come precisely because he is concerned about his children who are in exile. Not simply those who are exiled from the physical land of Canaan, but those who are exiled from the presence of God because of their sin. These chapters encourage us to look for and long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is, he has come. He did come to deliver his people from the enemies of sin and death. An enemy far more profound than an emissary of an earthly king. Or from even sickness, physical sickness. Unlike you and me, Jesus lived a sinless life. Unlike Hezekiah and all the kings before or after him, Jesus lived a perfect life of trust in God. Jesus really was the one who walked before in complete and total faithfulness. Jesus was the only one who really possessed a pure and whole heart. He was the only one who did what was good in the sight of the Lord. Who always did what was good in the sight of the Lord. And he wept bitterly 
over the devastating effects of sin in this world. He had compassion on sinners like you and me. And it was out of that concern, that compassion, and that love for sinners that he gave up his life on the cross. There, King Jesus, one from Hezekiah and David's line, took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls all of us to turn from trusting in ourselves, from trusting in our wealth, and trusting in our good works, and trusting in the world. He calls us to trust in Him. He's the only one who can save us. So we must put our trust totally in Him. He is the one who can save us. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what that means is you trust Jesus You trust that Jesus lived for you, the life that you've not lived. You trust Jesus died for you, bearing the punishment that was due to your sin. You trust that Jesus was raised from the grave so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight, not for your righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness on your behalf. This morning, from 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20, we've considered what it looks like to demonstrate your trust in God. What it looks like to trust God when you're surrounded by enemies, when you're sick, and when you're safe. Trusting God means that you abandon any hope, any hope that you have in yourself. Any hope that you have in any earthly person, or any earthly wealth, or any earthly security. It means staking your life, your very eternity, on the truth that God and God alone is eternal and unchangeable. That He is committed to His promises and His people. It means living and believing that He alone is your salvation. The person and work of Jesus fully reveals that God is trustworthy. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Him when you're surrounded? Do you trust Him when you're sick and suffering? Do you trust Him when you're safe? Do you trust Jesus? Let's pray together.